Now, as we come to the end of the book of James, James brings our focus to the end of all things. He reminds us to look to the end and calls us to live life with the end in mind. The reason for that is because how we live today is very much affected by what we believe about tomorrow and even more so by what we believe about the end of all things. Now, the end that James is speaking of and has in mind is the return of Jesus. Or even as he points out, the soon end, right? James declares that the Lord's coming is near. As we'll see in just a minute, these last verses, James chapter 5, verses 7 through 20, they serve as a sort of quick roundup, a summary of his entire letter. He will make points on those three areas that we've covered throughout the book, right? Controlling the tongue, caring for those who are in need, and also keeping a life that is not marked or stained by the world. But this summary of his all falls under the reality of Jesus' coming. And so we're going to consider those points briefly as we look at the passage, but we'll focus on the end that he has in mind. The focus of the passage is the end of time and the coming of Christ. Uh, but first, let me tell you a story that I remember hearing many years ago. I've heard it a couple times since. Uh, it's, it's one that comes to my mind every, every so often. Uh, and I've shared it before here at, at church, but I think it might be new to most of you who are here this morning. Uh, it's a story of long-distance swimmer Florence Chadwick. I found out recently, just I always want to update the story to make sure that I have it right, not just going from memory. And uh, I forgot that she went to the same university that I went, San Diego State University. Uh, different, about 50 years apart, or maybe, yeah, about 50 years apart, maybe longer. Uh, but Florence lived and died in the last century. Uh, and, and she was the first woman to swim across the English Channel both ways. We don't have that in common, uh, just, just the university by chance. Uh, in 1952, she attempted to swim 40 kilometers, actually just a little bit over, from the coast of California to a nearby island, Catalina Island. Now, the distance alone is impressive, but this is the open ocean. She was accompanied by a small boat that held her mother in the boat so she can encourage her daughter, you can do it, keep going, but also some men with rifles just in case, you know, sharks came while she's on her swim and bothered her. Now, at around 15 hours of swimming, uh, she wanted to quit. A heavy fog set in where she couldn't see anything. She couldn't even see the boat that was near her. Her mother yelled from the boat and said, you can do it. You're close. Keep going. And she did. She, she kept going for about another hour. Then she quit. Just, it, was, it was too much for her. After she got into the boat, she found out that she was less than one kilometer away from the shore, from her goal. Can you believe that? Who has swam 39 kilometers and quit? No, okay, well, maybe some of you have. Um, I sure haven't, but I, just the thought of that is, is unbelievable. It makes me feel like, oh, so close, right? Now, at the press conference the next day, she was asked, why did you quit? You were so close, Florence. She said the fog was so thick. I, I couldn't see anything. She said, if only I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Well, two months later, she attempted to swim again. 
same exact conditions, rough waters of the Pacific Ocean, sharks, fog, but this time she made it all the way. When she was interviewed, they asked her what was different about her swim, and she said there was nothing different about the swim itself. The same conditions as, as before, but this time, she said, I had an image of the shoreline in my mind the entire time. She fixed her eyes on the end. Now, James, similar to many of the New Testament author, authors, have also said that they want us to remember Jesus' near return. The end is in sight, they, they say. Don't lose focus. Don't lose hope. Don't lose sight of the end. Friends, as we prepare to go to God's word, would you pray, for, uh, pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, uh, we, we come before you as we always do, recognizing that we need your help to understand your word. Lord, these are just words on a page if your, your spirit doesn't quicken us and, give, and enlighten us and help us to see you. So, Father, help us to see you this morning. Help us to hear your voice. Lord, we pray these things believing that you're hearing us and that you'll be faithful to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I've read this text over and over again, as I, as I do when I prepare for the sermon, I see that the theme of these final words are a call to rest. They're a call to an active life of faith, as we've seen as the main theme in the book of James, but this is an active life that has a posture of rest, a posture of trust, right? A living faith with a living hope. That's, that's the Christian life. That's what the book of James is about. It's showing us how we ought to live if we are truly followers of Christ. Now, as we Look to the text. Uh, there will be three points that I want to highlight. Uh, they'll serve as an outline. There'll be some overlap, but hopefully you'll be able to see how they come together. Three points. Trust and rest in the purposes of God. Number two, trust and rest in the power of God. And number three, trust and rest in the promises of God. Purposes, power, and promises. And the main point of this passage is the main point of the sermon, and we'll see these things. Brothers and sisters, live in light of Jesus' soon return. We hear that phrase over and over again, brothers and sisters. He's ending with a familial call. He's speaking to them as a shepherd, as a, as a father, as an older brother. And so that'll be our main point this morning. Brothers and sisters, live in light of Jesus' soon return. With that, if you have your Bibles, please turn to James chapter 5. We'll read the entire passage, verses 7 through 20, and then we'll go through uh, and follow along. It should be in your bulletin. You can also follow on the screen. James chapter 5, starting at verse 7. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, 
Take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Our first point this morning, trust and rest in the purposes of God. This is so important, friends to trust and rest in the purposes of God. Now, James points out two areas specifically, relationships and hardships. So he's calling us to trust and rest in God's purposes in relationships and in hardships. You see, the relationships that we have, relationships that God has created, have purpose. Especially as we think of his context and what, he's, what we're speaking about here, as we think of the community of God's people through the local church. This isn't just any relationship that we have, our colleagues and our coworkers. Yes, the Bible speaks much about that. But in the book of James, primarily he's speaking about our interactions with one another. Right? The scriptures call us to actively engage with one another and to live with one another. Now, as, as much as we might want to be or, or try to be, we're not meant to be alone. We're not meant to live in isolation. We need one another. And yet, because of sin and brokenness and hardships, often these relationships that are God-ordained and, and are a good thing given by God, these relationships can be strained. James has addressed that throughout his letter, doesn't he? Or hasn't he? And, and he brings it up again here. And there's a sort of encouragement uh, as he reminds his brothers and sisters first of their relationship with Christ. And he reminds them that once a person is united to Christ, they're automatically united with all those who are united in Christ, right? That vertical reconciliation we have through Jesus, that he's made our relationship whole again with God, has brought healing amongst our relationships with one another. There's a call 
to be mindful that the relationships that they have are more important than any situation or any hardship that they may encounter. He wants us to be mindful that it matters how we live. Now, the reminder of the Lord's coming isn't so that we can say, well, nothing else matters. Jesus is coming. I can, I can spend all the money. I can build up debt. I can live how I want because ultimately Jesus is coming, right? It, it, it's not meant to say, well, what's the point of it all? It's not a fatalistic mentality or position, no. But that these things especially matter, these things being how we live in our relationships, especially matter in light of Jesus' soon return. I won't read the verses again, but you can see in verses 8 and 9 that James tells believers not to complain. Right? He instructs them not to judge one another. Why? Because there is one judge. We considered that last week, didn't we? There is one lawmaker, and we're not him. We've been given God's good law to obey it, but not to be the ones who judge it. What happens when we begin to judge one another is that we are putting ourselves in the place of God. James is saying that's not how we are to have relationship with one another. In verse 12, he highlights that what we say matters. If we are a people who live by faith, then we are a people who live with integrity and speak with integrity. A simple yes or no answer should be sufficient for a people whose lives are holy and that are marked by Christ, not by the world. If the only way we can get someone to believe us is that we swear by God and by everything in heaven and earth, maybe there's something wrong with your Christian life because a person can't trust you based on your life. And again, this is the entire theme that James has been speaking about and is kind of bringing again to a close. James also brings up a few different examples of hardships. Right? In verse 10, he mentions the prophets of old. He doesn't point out anyone directly, but again, knowing his original audience helps us to know why he didn't give a bunch of examples, right? The, 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 those who are first hearing and receiving this letter are Jewish believers who are very familiar with the stories of the Old Testament. And I'm sure that many different examples came to mind because it wasn't uncommon for God's prophets to suffer hardship and to go through persecution, Right? We know even from our lives, but certainly as we look to God's word and look at the example of history, that it should never be surprising for those who stand up in the name of the Lord to be attacked. Peter even tells us not to be surprised. James himself, as we'll consider, tells us not to be surprised by the hardships. For me, as I read this, the prophet Jeremiah came to mind. He is known commonly as the weeping prophet. Now that's not just because he was, you know, in touch with his sensitive side. He wasn't just an emotional guy who just cried um, whenever something came across. No, his message was heavy. He was mindful and aware of what God's word said, and he saw the brokenness and the adultery of God's people. He saw their hardened hearts. He saw that they have strayed from the truth, and as a, as a result, he, he wept he was grieved. He experienced various trials during his ministry, but he persisted and he waited and he trusted in God. Now in verse 11, James refers to Job. 
Uh, there is no greater example of suffering and endurance like the life of Job. Job was a faithful worshiper of God, both in times of great prosperity and great despair. And just as a short summary of, uh, of the book of Job, is that he was a man who worshipped God and honored God by his life, and his life was very prosperous. Then we read of a conversation that, that Satan had with God, and, and Satan says, well, the only reason he's following you, the only reason he's worshiping you is because you've blessed him. Look at his life. If you took away everything, he will curse you. And so, area by area, step by step of Job's life, everything he had was taken away. Family, wealth, property, his health. And yet, he still worshipped. Even his friends, we can kind of put so-called friends, right, told him, just curse God and die. It'd be easier for you. Should I ask for a raise of hands? Does anyone have friends like that in your life? No, don't raise your hands. Don't make eye, eye contact with anyone. They're in this room. Um, no, right? These, these friends told him to curse God and die, but Job wouldn't do it. We can even read uh, some of the most beautiful words in chapter 19. You can follow along. Job 19, verses 25 to 27. He responds, But I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the dust. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him, not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. If you remember with me uh, the opening of James's letter, we read some strange words. James 1, verses 2 and 3. He wrote, Consider it a great joy my brothers and sisters, when you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. We're not going to get deeply into it because we've already considered this passage, but this wasn't a call to pretend that everything's fine. As long as we just have a good attitude about every difficulty we go through, then that's, that's okay. Let's, let's even pretend that it's fun. That's not what he's saying here. Right? It's, it's a call to see that trials are a part of God's good purposes because God uses them to bring us to maturity. The greatest prize we have, the greatest thing that we have is, is the faith that God has given us. And so these trials and, and hardships strengthen that faith. We're able to see that hardships are necessary for growth because they strengthen our faith and they draw us closer to God. Hardships show us that we can't do everything on our own strength, which is good, because otherwise we'll never learn to rely on God. Right? Do you see how that works? Why and how God can use these hardships for our good? Right? If you could do anything that you needed on your own strength, How will you ever learn to trust on and to rely on God? Elizabeth Elliot's words come to mind here. She wrote, Suffering is never for nothing. Isn't that the fear that I'm going through this for no reason? Or even worse, that maybe it's a a punishment or uh, we're thinking that God is against me. So he's, he's, he's doing this against me because I've sinned against him. 
But as those who are in Christ, we still suffer as all of humanity, and yet we are encouraged to remember that suffering, our suffering is never for nothing. Isn't that so good to remember? Friends, God has greater purposes for our life, and so we need to learn how to trust and rest in His purposes. There's a purpose in our suffering, which is good for us to remember, but also we should remember that suffering is temporary. That doesn't mean that it might just last a day or two. In in one way or another, our suffering will last a lifetime. Even Jesus' life, when they considered how to describe him, how to define his life, we read in the Apostles' Creed, he was one who suffered. That was descriptive of his life. But as we look to the return of Christ and to the end of all brokenness, our life and our suffering is only a vapor. Right? The fog on your windshield, momentary. We do well to remember the Apostle Paul's words here from Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. He wrote, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now this last section, verses 13 through 20, we see the overlap of hardships and relationships, and we can see some of God's purposes. We don't always see God's purposes, but we can see a couple here. If you're sick, have people pray for you. If you're grieving, remember that you're not alone. Do you have sins? Confess them to one another so they will come to light. You know, there are some sicknesses in our life, physical sicknesses, that are because of unconfessed sins. Hiding sin causes stress and anxiety as we're trying to live this divided life. Remember, James talked about that. We're not whole, and so these stresses and anxieties have horrible effects on our physical health certainly on our spiritual health, certainly on our, in our relationships one, with one another. So James calls us to confess our sins to one another. Because when we bring things to light, we can heal. Are you or someone else straying away from the truth? Well, within the community of God, you have people who are looking out for you. You see, James wants us to see that there are purposes in what God is doing, and if we believe that He is good, we're able to rest and trust in Him through whatever may come. I think there's there's an opportunity here to take a moment and think about the sovereignty of God. I I think it's it's appropriate and it's fitting. Often what happens, and I'm speaking about conversations I've had and even uh, the, the thought that I've held on my own, Often, the brokenness and the suffering that we see all around the world and we experience in our own lives, we think that it's easier for us to make an excuse for God by saying, well, he's, he's not in control of those things. Right? We, we, we can wrongly think that the world is light and dark, and God is in control of the light, but he doesn't really have a whole lot of authority over the other things. We can think that there are equal powers in the world, and we believe as Christians that God will win in the end, but there's lots of uncertainty in between. Friends, please let me say clearly that the Bible doesn't teach that at all. 
Now, it, it might sound, if we don't dig too deeply, like a logical solution in our minds, but if we really think on it, it doesn't add up. It actually doesn't bring us comfort to think that God doesn't have complete sovereignty and power over all things. There's so much that can be said about this. And I don't know about you, but the thought that there are some things that God isn't in control of is terrifying. That would mean that things can happen without his knowing, without his permission. Now, for one, that would go against the character of God. Right? And it could be argued that God isn't God if he's not in control of all things, if, if there are things that are happening that he doesn't know. But even in experience, I find greater comfort to know that nothing happens apart from God's will. Even the hard things. Now again, we're not going to dig fully into it. This doesn't mean that God isn't the author of evil. Of course he's not. We consider that in James chapter 1. Right? God doesn't tempt us to evil. Right? We, we have real responsibilities and there are true consequences based on our actions. There are real brokennesses because of the sin that's in this world. But in God's sovereignty, he orchestrates and ordains all things. We can again look to Romans chapter 8, this time verse 28. And Paul writes, We know that all things, not some things or most things, but all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So friends, let us be a, a church and a people that trust and rest in the purposes of God. Number two, Trust and rest in the power of God. We can see this twice towards the very end. Uh, earlier in the letter, and, and now, James highlights the gift and the power of prayer. And he reminds us of one of the most simple and most powerful truths, that through Jesus Christ, we have direct access to God. Let me say that again. Through Jesus Christ, we have direct access to God. And so, James wants us to know that God hears our prayers and that he cares for us. And so we ought to regularly bring our needs to him. Friends, listen and listen closely. Our God is a God who hears you. He knows you and he loves you. And he is able to heal. He is able to answer the prayers that you present to him. Right? And, and so James Hollis, there is power in our prayer, but ultimately the power is in God who is able to do all things. James doesn't want us to forget that. And he, he calls us to pray with expectation as we trust God. And, and here's what can happen. When we pray and believe, we do so believing that God is able to heal. And we rest not in the answer to our prayer, but we rest in God. We rest once we've prayed because we believe that God has heard us and he will have his way. Isn't that why we say inshallah, or at least if we use the phrase the proper way? May God's will be done. Now sometimes that will end in a miraculous healing. James calls us to believe in that possibility. Other times there might be no change in the trial or the hardship. And so the call is for us to rest in God, not rest in results. We trust his purposes, and, and all the while we are called to keep our eyes fixed and looking ahead to the return of Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, there is an end to the brokenness and to the suffering of this world. And James calls us to remember it always and to live in light of Jesus' soon return, but especially when we're going through trials. There is an end to your sufferings, dear brothers and sisters, and it's a glorious end. Number three, trust and rest in the promises of God. Look with me again in James chapter 5. We'll look at verses 7 and 8. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You must also be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. We can stand on the promises of God. We can rest in his promises. And James calls us to, pa- to, to patience. Right? He says twice to be patient. And then he gives us the example of a farmer. What's the connection? Well, the original audience, everyone had some, uh, some aspect of farming in their lives, whether they themselves had to grow their own food or they knew someone. That's, that's how the, that was the way of the world. But, The connection with patience is that the farmer is both active and expectant in the way he waits, right? The farmer actively waits for an expected result, which is the rain, both the early and the late rains. And then we are called to wait and live with expectation for what? The return of Jesus. Right? The the, the patient waiting of the farmer isn't just sitting down looking at his phone, I know there's no phones back then, but that was the only example that came to mind. I feel like that's what we do. Whenever there's something to do, we're just waiting in line or we're doing something, our phone right away, right? right? No, there's, there's much work to be done in between the early and the late rains. But all the work is done with expectation. Right? He faithfully works in all these things while he waits because he trusts that the rains will come. He, and he's able to rest knowing that his labor isn't in vain. Imagine laboring, not knowing if it will rain in your lifetime. No, the farmer knows. The farmer knows that the end is sure. James also knows that the hardships of life and the brokenness of the world can make us lose heart. We can lose focus and we can lose hope. And so James encourages these first-generation Christians And every generation for the last 2,000 years to set our eyes on the return of Jesus. Now, I realize some some of you are thinking, what is Jesus' return all about? You see, the Bible declares that Jesus will one day come again for you and for me, for his bride, for the church. There will be a final consummation of all things where sin and death and every wicked thing will be destroyed forever. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the angel said to those who were watching as he was going back up to heaven, the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up to heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. 
Jesus will come back for a final rescue, a final judgment. Friends, do you know that everyone will be judged? The Bible declares it very clearly, very uh, uh, certainly, that we will all be held accountable and we will all be judged accordingly. Now, part of us says that's wonderful. There are a lot of people that I can't wait for them to be judged. And we say, come Lord Jesus, judge them now. But we don't look at our own lives When we do, we say, please, Lord, would you have mercy on a sinner like me? Why? Because the outcome is certain. We all deserve death. And that's why we declare that our only hope is in Jesus. You see, God's judgment for our sin and for our rejection of him fell on Jesus once and for all. And so for those who are in Christ who believe in him, who have been united with Christ, we've already been judged, friends. We've been judged in Christ. He took our punishment and he has given us his life. For those that haven't trusted in Jesus, in his life and his death, his resurrection as the way of salvation, judgment awaits. And the the Bible declares that there will be no one who's able to stand on that day. There's no amount of good intention or good work or efforts. There is no scale. We say, well, you did a little bit more good in your life than bad, and so we'll let it in. There's no wasta, except in Christ. So I guess there is wasta, but there's no, no other way outside of Christ. And so I pray that you will look to Jesus even now for your salvation, that you'd find rest for your soul like many of us here have. Jesus will come back for a final rescue and a final judgment. It is near. It is so near. Now, there are some people that have tried to claim that the Bible is wrong because for 2,000 years we've been reading that Jesus is coming near. Or his coming is soon. But near doesn't mean immediately. Right? What it means is that there's nothing left that needs to happen. It also means near from a heavenly perspective. And so our perspective needs to shift. We've considered that. Again, you see how these things are kind of uh, coming to a close in his letter. Think about the kid who's waiting for Christmas Day. One month or two weeks is forever away. Right? Our son Shai just had a birthday, and he's already planning his next birthday. And, I mean, he, he was talking daily, counting down. It just seemed like he was never going to turn six years old. And it's the same for all of us. Christmas, a month away, is that right? Less than a month away, by one day, is forever. But my heart is beating just a little bit faster. I'm sure every other parent in the room is feeling like, wait a minute, a month is not enough time. Right? A month. Surprise, right? Like, what are you doing after church? You can go shopping. You're thinking about all the things you need to do, you need to plan, you need to prepare. Parents don't see this time frame in the same light. Right? A month means that a year has disappeared. And there's no time before Christmas. And so the period of time hasn't changed, but perspective affects everything, doesn't it? And so we need to encourage one another to look at our lives as those who are united in Christ and to look at our lives from the perspective of eternity. As we close, let me invite you to think with me, to to imagine with me.
Can you imagine with me a culture within the church that is mindful of the reality of Christ and his soon return? Can you think what would change if, if we were all mindful of the real judgment that he will bring? Not only would that cause a deep rejoicing for our position in Christ, but a deep concern for our loved ones who don't know him. Can you imagine if we were a people who lived with the mindfulness that there is an end of all misery and all suffering? Think with me for a moment of a church and a people who can forgive, who can forgive momentary wrongdoings. Why? Well, because we know and deeply rest in the eternal glories that are waiting for us. Or we're not distracted by temporary pleasures because we are awaiting eternal glories. And that would mark us as a church. How did the prophets do it? How did Job do it? How can we not be paralyzed by the hardships and the injustices that are in the world? Well, we can't do it without our eyes fixed on Jesus. Friends, if we don't have the soon return of Jesus on our minds and on our hearts, if we're not living with expectation and with the, the, the desire for his, long, for his return, longing for his return, then we will be tempted to stray. We will be tempted to complain and to look for these momentary pleasures, to put our hope in things that we know aren't lasting. And yet, what else do we do if we don't have Christ? Friends, because Jesus has provided for our greatest need, we can trust him for all things and through all things. Remember Florence Chadwick's advice. Keep the shoreline in our minds. As we sang this morning, the shore of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true. Brothers and sisters, we can live today waiting and resting and trusting because Jesus is coming. And we together can say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can rest in your faithfulness. Where we can read of your faithfulness in the past as assurance of your faithfulness in the future. Where we considered a lot. And again, we've come here this morning with all different kinds of experiences and trials and hardships, joys and sorrows. And so, Father, would you speak to us as you have been speaking? Would you minister? Would you bring to repentance? Would you help us to confess sins, to bring them to the light? Father, if we're grieving, would, we, would you strengthen us to invite others to grieve alongside, not to hide? Father, for those who are rejoicing, may we rejoice and sing along in the praises of our King. Lord, help us to be a people who wait, not on our phones, not with grumbling, but with eager expectation waiting for your return. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for proving your faithfulness to us through your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.